Welcome to Constitutionally Speaking, a podcast about the United States Constitution, early American history, and political philosophy. My name is Jay Cost, and with me is my co-host, Luke Thompson. And this week, we are continuing our look at the, at the United States Congress through history. This is sort of our third episode looking at the history of the House of Representatives. First episode in this big uh, mini-series on Congress, we looked at at the earliest Congress. And then last week, we looked at the Congress during the Jeffersonian, Jacksonian ages. Now we're going to sort of shift into looking at the Congress as it developed over the course of the 20th century. When we begin to see a lot of changes in the way Congress is organized, and it, it, in a lot of respects, Congress kind of does a very interesting uh, U-turn, for lack of a better word, where we see um, the emergence of strong party leadership, particularly in the House, that then is beaten back with reform movements. But then by the 1970s, you see strong party leadership emerge again. And this is an era where we're going to be talking about um, the first character that we're going to be talking about is uh, Thomas Reed who was Speaker of the House from uh, 1895 to 1899. Luke, why don't you give us a little overview of uh, Thomas Brackett Reed? Well, Reed? So Reed actually serves two ten- terms in the House. Um, it's easy to forget his first one because it only lasts, lasts one term. Um, in, uh, during the, the beginning of the Harrison administration. Um, so it's you know, bookended by Grover Cleveland. And of course, he comes back in, in in 95, uh, at the end of, 19, of 1895 to take over. Um, so Reed, the two people we're going to talk about today uh, as speakers of the House with the Republican Party, Thomas Brackett Reed, not to be mistaken with Tom Reed, who's the current retiring congressman from what's now New York's 23rd district. Um, uh, Thomas Reed was sort of embodied one half of the um, what, what we might call uh, like the, the Yankee Western alliance of the Republican Party that comes to predominate in the wake of um, of the uh, of the Civil War. Um, you know, it's th- that that's that alliance is characterized by um, a uniformity in terms of or it's characterized by by really manufacturing the gold standard, um, the tariff, and, and the tariff is a source of persistent tension within the, um, uh, within the, the Republican sort of coalition, the, the, the Yankee Western coalition, um, ubiquitous land in the West, and uh, the sort of cultural um, sinew of the Grand Army of the Republic. Um, the Grand Army of the Republic is made up of all of the veterans of the Civil War. Um, and the uh, Civil War um, is really a, a sort of critical, it's, it's dumb to say it's a critical event in, um, in, in American history, because obviously it's, it's a seminal event in American history. But um, it it creates a number of, it catalyzes a number of forces already at work in the American political system. Um, There are a couple, I think, of really important differences 
between the Northern experience and the Southern experience of the Civil War. Um, and, and I know this is like a very long lead in to read, but I, I promise it's pertinent. Um, the North, the, the South, the Confederate Army is overwhelmingly Anglo-Saxon, overwhelmingly Protestant, and the population of the South fights some, you know, some huge percentage of um, combat-aged men, and that's a broad window in the South, see combat as part of the Confederate Army during the Civil War. Fewer than half of the men who fit that description in the North do quite a bit fewer. And so Northern politics, which, you know, become, so, so Northern politics is not going to be defined by this universal lost cause. On the other hand, the Republican Party becomes intimately interconnected with the Grand Army of the Republic, which is the Veterans Association that pops up after the Civil War for Union Army veterans. Um, the Northern Northern politics, like the Union Army, is pluralistic, uh, both in terms of ethnicity and in terms of religion. It's polyglot. Um, it's also multipartisan, uh, whereas the South becomes, through force of arms, in, in most cases, a single-party quasi-democracy dominated by the Democratic Party. The Republican Party does not stamp out the Democratic Party in the North, and indeed, the Democratic Party becomes a really important instrument for integrating uh, ethnic Catholic European descendants as well as others into uh, the American political system, even as the Republican Party is hegemonic and dominant uh, throughout the period from 1865, really until the New Deal. Yes, there are some some Demo you know Democratic presidents in there, but it's it's a period of tremendous Republican dominance, um, and it's it's a Republican dominance built on the back of the Grand Army of the Republic um, and uh, maintained through a system of patronage that hinges on state party coalitions being able to collaborate and the key sort of macro demographic blocks that run those state party coalitions are, again, Union Army veterans or their apparatchiks um, in the Northeast, New England, right, and in the West. So, um, you know, that, the, that coalition is able to survive even as, you know, smallholder farmer populism surges in the West um, at the end of the 19th century, um, even as, you know, you have massive waves of immigration into Northeastern, including New England cities. Um, the Republican lock on the majority of the government persists, not without challenge, but overwhelmingly the Republican Party is the majority party of the United States from 1865 until, until the election of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Um, what happens during this period, in no small part because of the uh, you know intensity of Civil War memory. Now we we have this like stylized version of how oh by you know 1910 the Union soldiers and the Confederate soldiers would get together for old soldiers reunions and talk about the war and the experience. That that's vastly exaggerated. Um, at the mass level, there was persistent hostility, persistent distrust, um, and and you really did have. Um, you, you really did have a kind of searing, catalyzing 
bonding of Union soldiers into the Republican Party, with some exceptions in the North, and of course, all of the Confederates, with the exception of James Longstreet, really become Democrats. Um, and given that powerful cultural sort of undercurrent that's reinforced by ethnicity and sectarianism, right, you wind up with um, a Republican Party that is, that, is, that is built on extremely powerful, strong partisanship, backed by structural economic interests, uh, likewise in, in the Democratic Party, uh, that supersedes the kind of dominant power that we assign to presidents, right? The president is still critically important because the president allocates all of these patronage jobs, as we talked about in the last episode, right? William McKinley, who is the last Republican president to have been a veteran of the Civil War, hands out 96,000 jobs in the post office when he becomes president, right? Um, This is still a huge, 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 huge um, part of the politics of American life, but um, the president is in some ways a creature of, a product of his party, rather than dominating the party in the way that we think of it today. And that's why figures like um, like Reed um, and the other person we're going to talk to about, Joe Cannon, who has a, an office building named after him, one of the congressional office buildings named after him, uh, why they're so important. Um, why is Reed important? Well, the most important thing to know about Reed, if you just know one thing about Reed or if you've heard anything about him, you're going to know about something informal called the Reed Rule, right, or the Reed Rules. Um, These were a set of rules that Reed put in place uh, as speaker to concentrate power in his office. Um, And the reason Reed was, it's not surprising that a Speaker of the House would want to concentrate power in his office, right? Every Speaker of the House aspires to be a British Prime Minister, (laughs) functionally, right? Um, But the Constitution and the fractiousness of of, of American politics uh, serves as a challenge to that. Um, Divided power between the executive and the legislature, of course, but also the the semi-annual election um, on a fixed schedule makes it very, very difficult to weather difficult storms, et cetera. There's, there's always back and forth and there are, there's simply a different set of, of pressures on, um, on a legislative leader in, in the House of Representatives, arguably also the, the residential requirement more than anything else may, may sort of force that pressure. But the goal that, of Reed's tenure was to impose uniformity on the House so that the speaker could actually run the show with more or less, I mean, it would be an exaggeration to call it dictatorial power, but, um, but it's not far off of that. Right. So um, I'll give you, I think this is best summarized in a, a famous or maybe infamous saying of Reed's, which is the best system is to have one party govern and the other party watch. Right. You have the majority party that dominates and the minority party that, as a friend of mine who's a who's a former congressional aide put it, um, becomes a think tank that holds roll call votes. And and that is truly the way in which. After Reed, Congress begins to or at least the House of Representatives begins to function, it goes from being um, a series of material and regional interests brokering through the committees and it consolidates in the speaker's uh, office 
power, policymaking, et cetera. And inevitably, as a result of the speaker consolidating power, the people who choose the speaker, i.e. the majority party, right, suddenly picks the policy agenda at, at the largely at the cost of, uh, of the of the committees. And moreover, it even narrows the, the sort of the, the priority group further from simply the majority party to the majority of the majority. Because even the minority of the majority party will prefer a member of its party to a member of the other party to be speaker because of all of the distributive goods, both within the chamber and in terms of agenda setting that come from having their party hold the speakership, right? So let's imagine, you know, Jay and I are both, um, are both members of Congress and our, our producer, Sarah, is running for speaker. You know, I really like Sarah. Sarah is going to push a policy agenda that fits with, with my preferences. Jay uh, is, is a sort of like moderate squish and is worried that Sarah is going to be too right wing for his district. She's going to be a problem. And so, uh, you know, Jay will vote against Sarah being speaker in the, the Republican you know, conference in this hypothetical case. But once the vote goes to the floor, Jay will still vote for Sarah to be speaker because it's always worth it for Jay to have Sarah be speaker because Sarah has an incentive to give Jay half of a loaf, even though she has no incentive to give anybody in the other party any portion of a loaf. Um, and in, in many respects, that's, this, is, this is Reed's legacy. Um, how, did, you know, how did he do this? Um, some of it was... So some of it was just sort of like amusing hardball politics, right? So Reed took the old Jefferson rules, which were the original rules of order, and actually Virginia and West Virginia still run according to the Jefferson rules of order. Um, and he began to, shall we say, um, improvise under those rules. So um, what he would do is, for instance, he would just ignore attempts by the minority party to engage in, um, in dilatory tactics, right? If they called a quorum, if they called a question, if they were doing the, the sort of classic things that minority parties do to slow things down, he would just ignore it and, um, and, and say to the Democrats, like, yeah, okay, fine, good luck. You're welcome to, to appeal. Oh, you're in the minority and my folks are with me. So, you know, I've got it. Like, we're going to continue to just push this forward. Um, he was able to, as a result, drive through um, a lot of of um, of the sort of delaying tactics that, that the Democrats tried to impose. Um, you know, he would also. Uh, so, for instance, right, like if if somebody demanded a quorum call, right, to slow things down. Um, what Reed would do is simply ignore the person, ignore the call, and then if there were a roll call vote, right, he might just pretend someone wasn't there or ignore their vote. And if the clerk of the House were to say, oh, well, I have to record this vote, this member is voting, Reed would simply say to them, don't record the vote, the person's present but not voting, and at that moment, it's up to the clerk to either defy the speaker and be fired on the spot, assuming that the speaker's power is, unless the speaker's power is overridden by his own party, or recognize that Reed can do what Reed wants and just let it roll. 
And as Reed sort of steamrolls through these rules, these dilatory mechanisms that had historically been used to slow things down and force brokering by the minority party, new norms emerge. And those are norms that are built around the majority of the majority party setting the policy agenda and legislating through. Now, before I hand it back, because I've been sort of running on for a while, um, what's important about this is that the majority of the majority party is not necessarily all that close to the median voter in the country, right? The median of the majority is probably closer to the median voter than the median in the minority, but not necessarily, it, but it's certainly not the same which means that majority party legislating is always going to be to the left or to the right of the median voter. When you start thinking about who sets the policy agenda as the majority of the majority rather than the majority itself writ large, you can see that the median moves even further away from the median voter in the United States. And so what that means is that under a system of, um, you know, a sort of dictatorship of the Speaker of the House, it actually builds instability into the very majority of a majority that creates the speaker. Because in order for the speaker to satisfy the selectorate that puts the speaker in power, the speaker is also undermining the very marginal members of that coalition that keep that party in the majority. Um, so there are short-term versus long-term trade-offs that are structurally built into, into this. And you see this really, I mean, to, to look at the present you know, it, it's quite clear at this point that Nancy Pelosi is very likely to lose the speakership and, and probably for good. Um, I would be surprised if she stays in Congress uh, next year. Um, you know, she will have been in charge of the Democratic Party for 22 years at the point she retires, I think 20 or 22, will have been speaker for eight. And in both of those chunks of time where she was speaker, she governed roughly where the median of the majority of Democrats was, but in a way that more or less destroyed her own majority. And, you know, we see the same thing with the Republican Revolution in 94, which we'll talk about as we, we move through this chronologically, but just, just realize that a Speaker of the House is not servant to the majority of American voters. It's not even a servant to all, say, Republican or Democratic voters. It's to, it, to the majority of Republican or Democratic voters. And that that builds instability that's not necessarily present in, say, a, um, a parliamentary system. Um, all right. I've, I've rambled. Jay, what, what more should we say about Reed? I realize well, I, I talked a lot about like things in the abstract, but not terribly concretely. Well, I think that the historical context of Reed and the strong speakership that evolves during that period is important to bring to the forefront. So. Um, while it is the case that the Republicans generally had a lock on the presidency between the Civil War and the Great Depression, and in fact, you only see, you know, two Four Democratic, times, right? two, yeah, two Democratic presidents during this period of time, during this, you know, 60-year period, the House in the latter half of the 19th century was much more competitive particularly between these two economic panics that happened. One, the Panic of 1873, and then capstone by the Panic of 1893. So the Panic of 1873 happens at a moment where the country 
is increasingly exasperated with the governance, the presidential governance of Ulysses S. Grant. And I, I really think it's very interesting to uh, consider the kind of Grant historical revisionism that people like Ron Chernow have been trying <laughs> to yeah. pull off lately. The country was tired of Grant. I'll just put it that way, you know, especially in light of the fact that they, you know, Grant couldn't even win renomination in 1880 as the Republican nominee for president, let alone um, win the presidency again. Grant, and again, this is not a story about the presidency, but the context here is important, so I'll go through it briefly. Grant was generally somebody who let his uh, friends administer the government, and they administered the government in a very corrupt fashion. So there's a large number of scandals during Grant's administration, too many to go into here. That had frustrated the country, combined with this economic panic of 1873, results in the Democrats taking the House of Representatives in the 1874 election for the first time since I believe 1858. So the Democrats had been on the outside looking in in the House for 16 years. Now they're back. And you have, over the course of the next 20 years, a kind of back and forth between the Democrats and the Republicans in control of the House of Representatives. As a matter of fact, the Democrats over the next 20 years control the House more than the Republicans did. And to talking about Thomas Tom Reed here. Reed was a president during the 51st, or he was speaker during the 51st Congress, which is a fascinating Congress. 51st Congress is held from uh, the uh, 1889 until 1891. It corresponds with the first half of Benjamin Harrison's only term. It is also the only time since 1874 that the Republicans have total control of the government. They have the trifecta, they have the president, they have the house, they have the Senate. And the Republicans go on a bonanza, spending spree, and do some stuff that's really kind of, in today's perspective, would seem really hacky. So one thing they do is they add six states to the union. They add North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming. I think they add, I want to say Montana, uh, Idaho. Idaho. Yeah. And so you're wondering, well, why are they adding these states? Well, they're adding the states to, to create for themselves effectively a permanent governing majority, which is why it's not coincidental. This is one of those fun historical curiosities that's easily overlooked. Migration patterns in the United States of America tend, tended to happen east to west in a linear, linear fashion. So the immigrants into these states in the present day uh, Mountain West are going to be Republicans. Meanwhile, immigration into present day New Mexico and Arizona are going to be Democratic, which is why those states are not added until Woodrow Wilson becomes president in 1913. So there's a padding in the Senate majority there, padding in the Electoral College. It's very humorous because the whole thing blows up in their faces because, uh, you know, five years later, they're all voting for William Jennings Bryan, the crackpot populist from Nebraska. It's very humorous. Another nice. thing that Republicans try to do, well, they succeed in doing is passing the so-called McKinley tariff, which jacks up tariff rates again, key to the Republican kind of political economic, their political economy, high tariff rates, um, pitched as good for industrial workers and good for capitalists. Although by that point, the tariffs economic value had been 
uh, it has been attenuated. Uh, another well, well, it is it is good for the Yankee portion of the Yankee Western Coalition, but the high tariff strikes at that Western Coalition, and that's part of what feeds into the transfer of the smallholders in the West. That's tr- that that that's true. But the tariff they could they could manipulate the tariff. So it depends on which Western voters we're talking about. The tariff can be manipulated in certain ways for like wool growers in Ohio and things like that. There was always little tweaks they could do for more p- prosperous farmers. But your free, point's free trade free trade for wheat, but you know um, yeah, right. yeah, and then that that in conjunction with the gold standard over time does lead to tension in the coalition. But yes, right, we're able to have right. carve-outs because it's a okay. Sorry, that that's true. Yeah. So um, then the other thing that the Republicans also uh, they 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 try to do during this, and this is the last time the Republicans make a genuine effort to impose. Uh, effect make the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment effective with the so-called Lodge Bill, which the Democrats denounced as the force bill. Basically, what it would have done is if you you look at the 1965 Voting Rights Act, how the basically inverts the burden of proof on these historically segregationist jurisdictions have to go to Washington and prove that these voting adjustments are not racist. Um, that's sort of what Lodge's bill would do. The Democrats managed to filibuster it, but nevertheless. So now the final thing that the Republicans do is that they they raise the tariff to a ridiculous extent, which creates a surplus revenue in the Treasury. And if you look through historical um, uh, surplus deficits through this through the years, you'll see, oh, the government ran a huge surplus in the 19th century. Look how fiscally responsible it is. It's actually a sign of fiscal irresponsibility because the Republicans were raising tariffs basically as a way to facilitate their political coalition, uh, taking more money out of the economy than what is necessary. And this sort of surplus was an embarrassment. So what do they do? They turn around and enact a massive bonus bill for the Grand Army of the Republic, right? So this is the kind of Republican agenda. The voters uh, respond negatively to what is known derisively, and today I think very quaintly, the 51st Congress is known as the Billion Dollar Congress. <laughs> as if, and like, you know, today a billion dollars is not even a rounding error. It's like nothing. But anyway, so what we get then in 1891, we get a democratic control of the, of, of the House, followed up again in 1893 with the return of Grover Cleveland to the presidency. But unfortunately for Cleveland, right as he takes office, we get the panic of 1893, with, with the, which with the exception of the Great Depression is the most devastating economic collapse in the history of the United States. It is a, it is a gut punch to the economy. Unemployment goes out of control. This also corresponds to unrest in the cities, labor revolts, all sorts of things. The Republicans are the minority party at that point. The Democrats are the ones who are left holding the bag. So the Republicans come back triumphantly in 1894. Cleveland is, I mean, Cleveland can't even go to the Democratic Convention in Kansas City in or St. Louis or wherever it was in 1896. I mean, his name is dirt within his own party. The Democrats embrace populism. They nominate Brian McKinley, not only defeats Brian, but McKinley defeats Brian by a larger margin than any Republican 
anybody had won the presidency since Lincoln. It was only a five-point victory, which sounds relatively narrow today. Like, for instance, it's about the size of Obama's victory over Romney. But in 1896, it was substantial. Now, what happens is that you get this 15 or so year period of economic prosperity that doesn't really come to an end until the panic of 1907. And this is when we see a major shift within the party coalitions in the United States of America. The South stays solidly Republican, but the areas yeah, in which the South, sorry, yeah, the South thank you, this, yeah, the, the South st- stays solidly Democrat, but the areas in the North that had been amenable to Democratic policies, places like Indiana and places like New York, shift away from the Democrats and toward the Republicans. So accordingly, McKinley is overwhelmingly reelected in 1900 by a little bit more than he was in 1896. In 1904, Teddy Roosevelt is elected by in an absolute uh, landslide election by the standards of the age and even indeed by the standards of today. So this is when we see the emergence of a strong Republican majority. And a point worth bearing in mind is that the reason the Republicans, the political reason the Republicans give up on the civil rights issue is because they no longer need black voters to win. The Republicans had at various points from Reconstruction up through the Panic of 1893 had formulated strategies to try and get a foothold in the South. So the Lodge Bill is an example of that. Black voters are loyal Republicans, so we're going to find a way to break through the the white segregationist blocking of Black voters to facilitate their, their vote. Now, though, the Republican majority in the North is so large, they don't need Black voters anymore. So this is just as a historical curiosity. Um, I mean, it's it's important. It's not a curiosity in and of itself, but it's sort of a footnote in talking about Congress. This is the context for understanding Reed's consolidation of power and Luke's point about Reed being uh, a powerful speaker who has behind him a cohesive political majority. And that generally is the rule of thumb in understanding party leadership in the House to a lesser degree in this Senate. The extent to which the speaker actually speaks for a majority of the majority the more power the speaker can wield. And so Reed was able to do everything that he did because ultimately a majority in the House of Representatives makes all of the decisions for the entire House. And Reed has a majority behind him. So that takes us up and I'm just gonna sort of move ahead here and talk a little bit about Joe Cannon, who is the Speaker of the House from 1903 until, yeah, go ahead. Before you do that, can I throw two things in? So. So who does this come at the expense of, right? Like if you think about who does it hurt for the speaker to consolidate power? And the answer is it hurts the Senate, um, or at least it hurts individual senators who are sideways with the speaker because the speaker has an entire chamber at bay, right? Which means that anything that hits the speaker's desk he doesn't want is dead. And he has the ability to put something on the desk of the majority leader of the Senate. It also hurts potentially 
um, senators because the House can legislate independent of the state legislatures, right? And it can serve regional interests within states rather than a balancing of interests across the state, which each senator is still having to do, even though we're coming up to the direct election of senators, which we'll get to in a sec, you know, later on. But, um, and then finally, it hurts the president because it's able to push back against the presidential Senate alignment we talked about last time that's built on the co- on the patronage system, right? These representatives are directly elected. The only time they're accountable to the state legislature is decennially when the census comes out and they get to redraw districts, right? And so if the speaker controls majority, that, that power can be really durable. And you see this show up where Reed who's you know, thought of as this kind of dictatorial figure is actually in many ways a modernizer, right? He aligns himself with reforming Republicans and mugwumps like Teddy Roosevelt in fights with William McKinley, who again, as I said, is the last of the Civil War veterans and the old kind of patronage Republicans, although that is a simplification and a stylized way of telling it, right? But you wouldn't, you wouldn't think dictatorial control in the House of Representatives would be a force for reform and a pushback against corruption, but it actually is because of the presidential Senate sort of um, alliance that we talked about. And again, all of this is taking place within a single part. Right, in a single part. And this is, I think, the, the point that leads us to canon, is that the Republican Party, in the wake of the Panic of 1893 and the ensuing decade plus of economic growth, The Republican Party expands to become truly the party of the North, such that in 1901, very, very few people, what you would call today, it's a thing that they said uh, about Obama's birthday party and the vaccinations, that it was a sophisticated crowd, somebody said on CNN, it was a sophisticated crowd. People who considered themselves sophisticated would not consider themselves Democrats in the first decade of the of the 20th century. The Democrats at this part point are the party of recession of of Catholics, secession and economic ruin, right? So decent people as they would say, you know, as as people like to say today are going to be Republicans. Now this creates problem, political problem for the Republican party is that the Republican party is so large that much of the Northern progressive movement finds expression within the Republican party. Now it's often sort of thought that progressivism was a purely Northern movement. That's not true. Progressivism was also a Southern movement as well. When it's in in fact, it's the Southern Democrats who helped Wilson power through many of his major, um, progressive reforms. And in fact, the Speaker of the House during Wilson's administration is Champ Clark, who's actually from Missouri, which was, you know, a slave state all the way back in the in long ago. Um, so progressivism is a really a unique movement in American history in it in the breadth of its uh, co- in, in, in the breadth of its size. Progressivism includes Northern reformers of the mugwump variety who want to clean politics up. So that would be like a Teddy Roosevelt senior type of guy who was an anti sort of patronage crusader. That would be a, 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 a um, 
Henry Adams type, the sorts of people who hated James G. Blaine because he was a crook. It encompassed William Allen White, even even when it comes to some, and and these are big coalitions, right? But even somebody like Elihu Root, when it comes to reforming the army staff, even though Root opposes the direct election of senators, right? Like there are, and and is very in with the large industrial interests. But yeah, what what becomes progressivism pulls these mugwumps who sort of start in the Harrison administration and, and anyway, yeah. And it, it pulls in, it also pulls in the populist movement or the remainders of the populist movement from the West. It pulls in modernizers, people who want to modernize the administration of government, bring in new tools of social science, people who want to reform the tariff. The tariff had been stubbornly unreformable for so long and people there was a consensus, at least among Northerners, that protective tariffs were good, but that they tariff rates had to be set according to scientific principles of economics. There's all these groups, all, all of these people who end up being, generally speaking, in the basket of, of progressivism. And so what I throw happens- in, can, I, can I throw in two more that are important sure. electorally, even though they probably wouldn't be identified as progressives, but they're a key part of the, the emerging progressive electoral movement. One is temperance, the temperance movement. Yep, the temperance um, movement. Mm-hmm. Which is, is, is driven a lot by sectarian hostility to, um, to uh, Roman Catholic immigration, which is viewed as, as louche and well-lubricated by Western Protestants. Yeah, if you, um, pro- if you scratch progressivism, you don't have to scratch very deep. If you scratch progressivism, though, you're going to find Yankee Protestant disgust with Irish it. Catholics and second wave immigrants. You don't have to look very yeah, it's, to it, find it. It's, it it's a hurt. common thread yeah. throughout progressivism. Re- reforming the morals of and and even well, you, you, know, you even, get really horrifying things like some of the some of the Western Indian schools that they put together. Yeah, you get that I mean, too. Yes, yeah, some, some frankly yeah, genocidal and, stuff. And even even the social welfare aspects of urban reformers. It's all very much in the mold of like we have to purge the high what the hibernian corrupt <laughs> yeah, model yeah. of political machines in the cities and reform the morals of these unwashed catholic immigrants and things like that you get, it's a you know, very, they all have, they've it, all got calipers in their desk and they're ready to do yeah. phrenological measurements of people's skulls they really are like yeah there's a lot of scientific true. racism in it and then the other group which is not scientific racism but uh forms something of a cross-party force is this is also the period of the rise of the second clan yeah. Um, and the second Catholic aspect of the clan. Yeah, which which the second clan is virulently racist, but it's also virulently sectarian and anti-Catholic. Yes. And so anti-Jew and anti-Catholic. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's the, it, it, yeah. So that because that's another thing that's going on here. I mean, progressivism is a consequence of a number of factors. I mean, for for starters, you know, the political economy of 19th century America that is gotten very stale. In last week's episode, we talked about a lot of these parameters being set by the 14th Amendment, sound money, industrial protection, internal improvements, right? This gets reinforced by Lincoln, carried through in the later half of the 20th century. It's a stale program. It's a, it's a program that makes a lot of sense for a country that is quickly industrializing, but for a country that is now largely industrialized and suffering from the negative um, consequences of industrialization, it's not a great program. Um, So that's part of it. And also you have beginning in the 1880s, you get this massive wave 
of basically unrestricted, unregulated immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe, which really doesn't get cut off until the Republicans take back control of the government in the 1920s. So all of these forces are percolating and have been percolating through society. I mean, you can go all the way back to the liberal Republicans who oppose Ulysses S. Grant. So this is yeah. a reform movement well, that's like 50 years in the making. Yeah, and, and, and challenge- what, what's, what's happening? Sorry, I'm, I keep interrupting you, Jay, and I apologize. I just get I get excited about this this period <laughs> because nobody nobody teaches this period in, in school, but it's critical to actually understanding the world we live in, right? I mean, this is not, this is 120 years ago. This is not that long ago. Right. Right. But um, but, you know, and, and the important thing is this is before the great migration of of poor black agricultural workers out of the south and into the north. Right. So so there's there's this catalyzing moment that's going to happen around World War One and World War Two that hasn't happened yet. And yet that moment's going to happen in a in a political context that's going to absorb and shake it. And we're t- talking about that political context right now, right? So remember what I said at the beginning, where the Confederacy is an Anglo-Saxon movement uh, that's, that's, you know, uniformly white, uniformly English speaking, and overwhelmingly ethnically homogenous, right? Whereas the Union Army is ethnically pluralistic, polyglot, and and multi-sectarian, right? The result of politics, northern politics, and the rise of the Yankee Western Coalition in the Republican Party turns the Republican Party of 1900 into looking a lot like the Confederacy in terms of being overwhelmingly Anglo-Saxon, overwhelmingly Protestant, overwhelmingly English-speaking, and hostile to these new white immigrants into the major cities that become the backbone of the urban Democratic Party in the North. So, yeah, that's... So, so in some ways, you have two two coalitions of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants fighting each other, a Yankee version and a, and a Confederate nostalgic version. And both of them are trying to draw on the underclasses of their respective regions to balance one another out. And the Northern Coalition is bigger. And so for this period of time, the Republicans dominate. That's simplistic, but it, it's helpful. I think. Yeah. So what you see in the Republican Party, um, and you see this, in, you can see it in the election of 1900 is this divide within the party between conservatives who are basically committed to the old political economy, strong money, high tariffs. I don't want to quite say laissez-faire, but something approaching laissez-faire. That, that sort of old idea that, the, that Coolidge said, the business of America is business. Nelson Aldrich at this point is a senator from Rhode Island, soon to be the, the leader of the Republicans. He's pretty self-aware and, and believes and states outright that business interests deserve to have their own representatives in government, right? So there's this sort of Republican, Northern Republicanism has as a consequence of 80 years of Republican political economy before that Whig national Republican political economy really fused a force faction, broad faction within the Republican party has fused with the industrial base of the North, the capital owners of the North, such that their outlooks are basically identical to one another. So you have that faction, um, which uh, for lack of McKinley, I don't want to oversimplify McKinley because he's an important nuanced guy, but McKinley's their guy. On the other hand, you have this rising group of reformers typified by most famously by um, Teddy Roosevelt. 
but also encompassing uh, Western Republicans are going to be the least the least inclined to the status quo. And this is why Roosevelt Roosevelt actually gets put on the Republican ticket in 1900, not because the progressives are that powerful a force in the party yet that they can actually bargain and acquire the vice presidency. But it's basically a favor that Ohio Senator Marcus Hanna does for New York Senator Thomas Platt, because Teddy Roosevelt had risen very quickly and very self-consciously to fame, um, supposedly charging up San Juan Hill and firing, you know, a couple of rifle shots at some unlucky Spanish soldiers and had made a name for himself during the Spanish-American War takes that into the governorship of New York. uh, New York at this point is run by Republican machine under the aegis of of Tom Platt, the Senator from New York and Roosevelt gets the tacit sort of peace brokered with the Republican machine promising he won't try to upset the apple cart by being a reformer. Well, Teddy Roosevelt being Teddy Roosevelt cannot abide by this and he's a major ha- headache for Platt. So what? where's the best place to stick a troublesome politician in the United States of America? Put him on the vice presidential ticket because nothing, he can't do anything. Except that McKinley is visiting the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo, a crazy anarchist shoots him. And then, as Hannah says, that damn cowboy's in the White House. So we get this moment here where progressivism almost accidentally kind of breaks through. And you get this tension that exists within the Republican Party in increasing levels across the 1900s during Roosevelt's presidency. Now, Roosevelt is uh, powerful, popular enough and smart enough crafty enough that he has a good sense of when and how much to push. So in the early years of his administration, he's not as aggressive in pushing a progressive agenda as he is after he's elected in his own right, 1904. Now he hands the baton off to William Howard Taft, who I think is one of the more underrated American presidents that we've had. Taft had been ter- had been governor of the Philippines, and I think he had been secretary of war for Roosevelt or something like that. Taft was sort of his handpicked guy, and it was Taft's job, like Roosevelt, to kind of bridge the divide. Taft himself was a a progressive by policy instinct, but did not have the kind of personality that Roosevelt did. And so Taft is unable to keep these various factions within the party happy. And that's sort of typified by the uh, Payne Aldrich tariff of 1909. So in 1908... Yeah, go ahead. I would I would go a little further than that. Even I would say, you know, Taft and Roosevelt come out of Benjamin Harrison's. They get their start in civil service, really, and under the Harrison administration. They're sort of proto mugwumps at this point, and they they're both reformers. But but the the conflict between Taft and Roosevelt is telling, because Taft as president is is a reformer, is skeptical of the patronage system, is willing to push for the professionalization of the civil service and the creation of a modern bureaucracy, right? Um, along with Roosevelt's erst, now at this point erstwhile mentor root and things like that. But as, as Roosevelt becomes a source of conflict within the party, which people overrate and, and say is, is a byproduct entirely of Roosevelt's personality, you also see this split between what you might call the modernizers and the metaphysical reformers, right? Or the, the 
the, the like Republican modernizers and the ideological progressives that are coming out of this itself reformist tendency that has opponents within the Republican Party who are like old Republicans. Most of them are literally old Republicans, right? They're of McKinley's generation or even a little older than McKinley who just want to maintain the state party patronage coalitions of major industries paying the state parties to run elections and then distribute jobs, right? So you have the sort of like the grant men against the reforming Republicans against the ideological progressives all within a single party, those second two groups had previously just looked like the same force under the force of reform. But under the Taft presidency, they really do split. And you see people like White, William Allen White, and Roosevelt leave the Republican Party to look to ally with Democratic populists. Um, initially to form a third party. And then later under Wilson, you have the progressive movement move into the Democratic Party, where it does find a commodious sort of home because there's hostility to capitalism. There's um, hostility to uh, pluralism, um, right? I mean, this is where some of the like social engineering comes in. And there's a willingness to use the state to crush or at least to combat the large economic interests in the North in the service of urban proletariats, if you will, who are mostly recent immigrants, post-Civil War immigrants who are not part of the Republican coalition, and to distribute goods to the South um, out of the federal government in the service of maintaining the sort of post-slaveocracy, large-holder agrarian system in the, in, what, in the former Confederacy. Right. So what happens ultimately, as Luke alluded to here, is that the Republicans are unable to successfully keep all of these ideological factions. And that is a lot of what we're seeing here is an ideological dispute within the Republican Party. And they're unable to keep all of these factions happy within the party. And this is you know, typified by the uh, 1912 presidential election where Roosevelt campaigns in the primaries for the nomination but the, the convention is firmly in control uh, of the, the, the party elites are firmly in control of the convention. They renominate Taft. So Roosevelt forms a splinter party. You actually see something that is actually not the first major blow up of this ideological division. You actually had seen it a few years earlier in, I want to say it was 1910. And the so-called revolt against Speaker Joe Cannon. So Joe Cannon becomes Speaker. As I would mentioned, uh, Cannon is Speaker uh, from 1903 until 1911. He is going to be on the more, for lack of a bit, don't read too much into the use of the word conservative. It's not like modern conservatism. It's a different kind of conservatism. It's a conservatism that is uh, partial to the old political economy of the National Republicans, the Whigs, and then the Lincolnian Republicans less is not as interested in reform so he clashes with roosevelt now cannon importantly um uh, uh has an enormous amount of power under his under his control like like speaker reed so cannon himself is actually not only is he the speaker of the house he's the chairman of the rules committee which means he can basically dictate the entire course of legislative behavior on the floor and then he also takes control over appointing members to committees, regardless of seniority. 
And Cannon wields this power for the purposes of, you know, conservative Republican politics at the time. And in 1910, you see a coalition of something like 40 progressive Republicans and that and they're and the entire Democratic caucus joined together to basically pass a new series of resolutions that strip canon of these vast powers. And as a, as a consequence of this, um, it's reinforced by the 1910 midterm because the 1910 midterm sends the House over to the Democrats. Um, and so you, you end this period of strong centralized Republican control of Congress because the Republican majority is no longer ideologically homogenous, sufficient to maintain a figure like Cannon or before him like Reed. Right, right. I mean, um, so to what, so what, to what do you attribute? I mean, look, all all political coalitions ultimately like ultimately decay, right? Um, you know, part of part of it is that tension, that structural tension we talked about. Part of it is just you know things change, right? Like there's 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 this wheel and engine that that turns. But but what is it that you think that drives this split in the Republican coalition? I mean, is it there from the get go, or is it that the Grand Army of the Republic was this cultural glue holding together a sort of contradictory caucus? I mean, I mean there's you know we touched on it. There's no reason why the tariff couldn't have been adjusted and the gold standard, you know, preserved to have carve outs for smallholders in the Western states specializing in certain crops. On the other hand, you know, the, ultimately having the gold standard was going to put pressure on any high leverage industry and or, or sector, if you want to call it agricultural sector, right? So all of these smallholders in the West who are living in farmland opened up during the 1860s, they're all going at some point to have to be leveraged up to the hilt. And so they'll have an interest in looser money than the, than the, the, the sort of Northeastern manufacturing class is going to be interested in. I mean, what, where do you see, it, is, it, is it inevitable that it was going to break down in this way or were there other ways it might might have broken down. Um, I'm, I'm thinking in particular, there was a, a Matt Iglesias a long time ago, not that long ago, I guess, you know, a year ago, probably, I remember, did a tweet thread about how progressivism might have been, you know, had, had Teddy Roosevelt been able to win the Republican nomination for, for a second full term, he would have, you know, come to dominate the, um, the party and bring the progressive movement entirely under the Republican fold, which was its more natural home than in coalition with Southern Democrats. And I'm just, I'm not sure I believe that, right? I, I think there's, I think there are just too many cross-cutting cleavages after the civil war to, to preserve it. And it's, it's really the, the miracle isn't that the Republican party broke apart. It's that it lasted that long. Yeah, I mean, just, I mean, right off the bat, is there anything more idle in the political discourse today than a tweet thread by Matt Iglesias? Oh, yeah. I mean, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, just like, let's just idly sit around talking it, it, out of it hat stayed, about It whatever. stayed with me. I thought about it. You know, I'm, I'm part of the problem here. I was pondering what it would have looked like to have a, you know, William Allen White as Secretary of State in a second Roosevelt administration. No, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I, and I think, Iglesias, look, I don't want to 
I, we're talking I about we're talking about late nineteenth century history, not not magazine writers of of the current I, age. But yeah, yeah, I, I and also I, I I doubt that regular listeners to constitutionally speaking would be surprised to know what my <laughs> opinions are on Matt Iglesias. Let's just put it this way: that's a gross oversimplification. I'll just put yeah. it this way. Let's yeah. put it that way. I mean, for starters, I mean, just among other things, is that you know how do i want to put this look that there's a fundamental tension here between northern capitalists and northern owners of capital and their middle class managers with the negative externalities created by industrialization there is a clash there the northern industrialists are locked into the republican party through the votes of their middle-class managers, but also their financing of politics that is going to make the Republicans less resistant to policy reforms. And it is going to expose, and, and I think this is a this is the point. There, the party, the gap between the party's rhetoric and the party's actual policy output is not insubstantial. 1908, the Republicans promise um, in their platform, they promise a, quote, modification of the tariff, indicating that they were going to, the common interpretation would be, it's time to lower tariff rates. In 1909, they enact the Payne-Aldrich tariff, which actually raises rates. And when queried about this, Nelson Aldrich responds, well, we never said that we were going to modify it downward. (laughs) And this, I think, speaks to the problem that exists within the Republican Party at this point, is that while there is, I think, a more reformist impulse within the House of Representatives on the Republican side, the United, the, the Republicans of the Senate are to a large, shocking broad degree have been captured by industrial interests of various sorts. And so you see during this period of time, you see Republicans engage in a series of half measures. So for instance, during the populist era, um, uh, you see the, the, the Democrats are calling for, or the populists are calling for the free and unlimited coinage of silver at a ratio was like 26 to one or something like that, right? Well, the Republicans are not going to go for that because Gresham's law is very clear that if we start coining silver at that rate, which is actually not the, trans, that's not the exchange rate between silver and gold, the gold stock in the country is going to disappear. So the Republicans instead agree to do what they what is a limited coinage of silver through so like the Bland Allison Act, right? And it's a good illustration. Allison was a senator from Iowa and he was very good at sort of doing the populist song and dance, but the Bland Allison Act was um, just uh, paper covering because it co- called for only a limited coinage of silver, which meant that basically the Treasury Department, with some careful management, could maintain the gold stock and basically deny any kind of um, any kind of uh, uh, of, uh, of, of money depletion, yeah. right? And, and and you see other examples of this. So, like for instance, the Republicans are going to be okay with 
the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1905. Um, but they're not going to be up for any substantial protections of organized labor, for instance. Um, they're not going to be for, you know, you see the Republicans in the 1916 presidential campaign when Wilson, I can't remember the name of the act that does it, but calls for like a 12 hour workday for train workers. Mm -hmm. uh, the Republicans denounced this as socialism in the campaign of 1916, right? That this is just, that kind of regulation of capital is never gonna happen in a political party that has fused its interests with Northern capital to the extent to which the Republicans did. So I, I, I don't think that that's true. I, I do think that Roosevelt, by virtue of his personality and political acumen, is able to hold the party together through the first decade of the 20th century. But I also think that if you look at Roosevelt's economic agenda of 1912, to think that 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 is, I mean, it's basically socialism is what Roosevelt's selling in 1912. To think that Northern capital owners are going to be down for that kind of managed economy is nonsensical. It's nonsensical. To, to, I mean, to, to that point, you know, you look at sort of the extent to which they were agreeable to it in 1932. They were kind of agreeable to it with the New Deal. Because of the because of the devastation of the Great Depression, but as soon as as soon as the economy turned a corner, starting in like 1934, business begins revolting against the New Deal. So I don't think that that's a very um, I, I think the notion that a single you know, there I think one needs to be careful in ascribing too much influence to single personalities, even a personality as singular as Teddy Roosevelt. He is still a man who is bound by forces that are outside of his control. And I think his failure in and 19... Probably, and probably not a, not a personality that would have attained the presidency, but for the, um, you know, infelicitous intervention of Leon Cholgas. Yeah. And, and I would say as well that, you know, when the Republicans are intent on binding their old wounds up in 1916, but they're damn sure not going to nominate Roosevelt. You know, they're going to nominate Charles Evans Hughes for that position. Right. So mm -hmm. I think there's something to be I think there's something to be said um, for you know, look, the, the, co the, the Republican coalition in many, many respects, I mean, has changed over the centuries. But its orientation towards unfettered business activity has been surprisingly consistent. And the progressives in many respects were looking to fetter business activity. That was always going to be a hard sell within the Republican Party, I would say. So anyway, um, that takes us to the end of you know, this period of strong uh, centralized power within the House of Representatives. And in response to that, we begin to move into the progressive era, and particularly the Wilsonian era, we see two sort of distinct features that end up defining the House of Representatives for a long time, uh, and, and even arguably through to today. And I'm, I'll mention both of them, Luke, and I'll throw it over to you. You can sort of take sure, whichever sure. one you want. The first is the increasing importance of the committee system where the committees is sort of after um, after Cannon's power was sort of cracked and there was now power to just power that was out there floating around, that that power ends up migrating to the committee system. 
We also see really during Wilson's administration, although it was hinted at in various degrees during uh, Roosevelt's administration, and you could even argue Cleveland's administration as well. But Wilson is the one who takes very seriously the concept of presidential governance. And, And Wilson, as an academic, before his political career begins, actually celebrates the British system where the ministry of the government actually is in charge of parliament. And Wilson had proposed integrating the executive ministry, the executive, the heads of the executive departments in a more concrete fashion with Congress. Now, when Wilson becomes president, um, he is going to not propose any reforms of the constitutional project. Instead, he's going to sort of take it upon himself to act, to fill the space and use the rising power of the president, because this is an age of an increased communication and the power of a single voice speaking for an entire branch of the government conveys, creates certain opportunities for Wilson to sort of put his hands more firmly on control, on Congress than I would say any president since Lincoln. Before that, I think you would probably have to go back to Jackson, but you could even make the argument that you'd have to go all the way back to Jefferson to sort of see it in such a intentional, purposeful way. Because Jackson, of course, was, you know, half mad. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, certainly. Um, So Woodrow Wilson, um, I mean, Wilson, Wilson becomes president, I don't want to say accidentally, but, um, but he does not become president under his, own, uh, under his own political power. Let's put it that way. He's, he's put forward initially as governor of New Jersey and later as president because he is a, um, you know, he's, he's perceived to be politically saleable to available populations that otherwise would not vote for Democrats. Um, you know, he's bookish, he's intellectual, he's initially Southern. And yes. ide- ideologically, I, I'm of the view, um, and I, I get this mostly from Stephen Skoranek, who, who persuaded me of this, that, um, that Wilson remains throughout his life fundamentally a Southern. Um, that, that if you read the 14 points through the lens of, of that, and also read the reaction to the 14 points through the lens of, of a kind of um, northern southern hostility. The, the visceral anger and reaction that you get from you know, people like Henry Cabot Lodge makes a lot of sense. And, and I think both Lodge and TR describe the 14 points as, as little more than sort of a tarted up version of, of the Confederate ideology. Um, what interesting yeah yeah i mean it's this notion of of like states uh, peoples and self-determination i mean there's this there's this idea of the of the union of empire coming out of the 19th century union empire progress development you know industry they don't use the word development but um that that these guys have in mind and they see you know they see national self-determination as parochial atavistic um, inevitably leading to groups opting out in, in one round um, when they get a bad deal, centrifugal, uh, essentially a recapitulation of, the, of, the, of Calhounite um, politics. 
So well, I will say, by the way, that the United Nations is basically Cal- the Security Council is basically Calhoun's concurrent majority. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, this, I mean, you know it's, yeah, it's it's like it depends on whether you view, you know, peoples as bearers of sovereignty independent of the state. Right. Like, right. like I don't you know, the Republicans of the late 19th and early 20th century do not have a problem with empire per se. You know, there are lots of internal divisions within the Republican Party over whether we should fight the Spanish-American War, right. whether, whether we should fight the, the First World War. Um, yeah. I mean, there is embarrassment within the Republican Party respecting the possessions that were acquired as a consequence of that war. Yeah, and, right. and frankly, going back to Whig politics in the Mexican-American War, right? You, you yeah, have- the Whigs were embarrassed by that. Yeah, and if you look at, you know, going back to this Yankee Western coalition, right, the Westerners generally don't like foreign adventurism, um, you know, partially in the Whig period. This is because they're terrified of, of slavery expansion. Um, but, you know, the, the Northerners are a little more enthusiastic about it. But what they see in Wilson is, um, you know, this kind of, of innervated empire, right? They're, they're not actually growing or creating anything. They're just, they're just foisting on stilts a lot of ideas of self-determination that don't really make sense. And, and, and look, backstopping a lot of this too is a view that, you know, maybe not all peoples are cut out for sovereignty. So I don't want to pretend this is entirely congenial, right? It's, it's certainly not. Um, but, uh, you know, Wilson, um, Wilson, Wilson be, is an accidental president in so many ways, right? Like he, he attains power, not through his own, devices, but because the Republican Party implodes. And then he does something really interesting, which is upon his initial election, he flips and takes the entire Republican plan to stabilize the currency. Because as Jay had pointed out, the Republican Party and the senators in particular in the Republican Party were willing to push reform insofar as it was in the service of industry. Right. And the major agglomerations of business that were their 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 primary funders. So you have, you know, Nelson Aldrich comes up with what becomes the Federal Reserve under the Aldrich plan. Wilson runs against it in, in good old fashioned bimetallist sort of Democratic Party politics fashion, then turns around, modifies it and passes it as a, a key part of his program. Um, Similarly, he wins re-election saying he kept us out of war. The Republican Party is still divided, hopelessly divided, and then turns around and gets us into the First World War. And it's, it's at that moment where, you know, Wilson is standing astride the globe that other than, I mean, I, you know, FDR because he dies before the end of the war and Truman because he becomes president thanks to FDR's, you know, selecting him. I'm not sure another president stands astride the globe the way Wilson did for about six months, you know, in, in, in 1919. Um, And then it all comes falling apart uh, both because he has a stroke and, and for reasons of policy. Um, But I, I mean, I don't know, you know, Jay, we've gone over an hour. Do you want, should we, should we hold off to the new deal? I mean, what, what the upshot of it is, is that, 
not unlike Grover Cleveland, who arguably had an opportunity to break the back of the Republican coalition and create a new Democratic coalition. Wilson, too, has a moment to break the back of the Republican coalition and create a new Democratic coalition that's a majority coalition and fails. Whether that was because of structural factors or contingent things, political scientists can debate that till the cows come home. But it appeared, at least to me, it seems like there were genuine opportunities that, that where, where had they made different decisions as individuals, they might have had long-term path-dependent ramifications. FDR comes along and, and, and it's a different story, right? He, he does successfully break a Republican coalition that at that point is entirely exhausted and, and forms forms a new majority coalition out of the West and the South, which was obviously sort of what, and, and Northern cities. Those were always going to be the kind of coalition pieces and FDR through the New Deal puts them together. Wilson tries to do that, but um, but simply fails. And, and part of that is because the League of Nations becomes a central part of his message. And ultimately, I think, is, is not on its merits defensible, right? Like the League of, the 14 points in the League of Nations would not have delivered as anyone with a remotely skeptical eye looking at it would have seen the, the things that it claimed it would have delivered in terms of preventing future war. The First World War, although the United States gets a lot out of it, right? And remains heavily involved in, in maintaining the peace in Europe for the 20 years afterwards. Um, you know, the U.S., it's unclear what the U.S.'s ultimate goals here are, right? There isn't a Soviet threat. Um, you're not looking at a world in which, you know, the United States needs to stand a straight empire. And while in the wake of World War I the, and, and, and Versailles, the U.S. sets up a, a fascinating system of credit where we're essentially bankrolling the Germans to pay reparations to the British to pay their war debts to us, right? So we're paying our own people, but we're circulating money through the, through the European economy to help rebuild it. Um, nonetheless, like, it fails, right? Versailles fails. Um, and, and the League of Nations, we don't join it. And a huge reason we don't join it is because people look at it and say, this is, this is a creature of, of, of you know, Jefferson Davis, not of a kind of meaningful, enforceable global empire, uh, which was what was sort of advertised. I mean, it kind of goes back to the, to, to the Constitution and the Articles of Confederation, right? It does. Um, so anyway, I mean, maybe that's a good place to leave it. We can come to the New Deal in, in the next well, episode. Well, let me just, or, I, I, just um, I, have a, I have a few thoughts to share just to sort sure. of tee up the New Deal. Um, because I think in many respects, Wilson is, I, I, I should obviously goes without saying that Wilson is hugely influential for Franklin Roosevelt, who served in his administration. There are reasons as well, I think. Um, Wilson's political coalition. So, Luke, to your point, you know, Wilson is governor of New Jersey, but he was born in Stanton, um, Virginia. And he is certainly has, he's Presbyterian, but he is very much, I would say, in the Southern mold of Presbyterianism. And he is, his career in politics prior to the presidency is vanishingly short. He gets elected to governor, as governor of New Jersey. And 
he's elected governor of New Jersey in 1910. He's already running for president, so to speak, in 1912. And Luke is right in the sense that Wilson is, is advantaged in many respects in 1912. Accidental president in many respects. His main competitors are uh, Champ Clark, who's the Speaker of the House from Missouri, seen as insufficiently progressive. And then William Jennings Bryan is still kind of floating in the background, having been the party's nominee in 1896, 1900, 1908. Um, and then I don't remember who it is, but there's some guy who's like that Tammany Hall guy. And Brian basically says that he can't back the Tammany Hall guy. And remember, we talked about last time, there's this sort of two-thirds um, two thirds rule in Democratic nomination. So Wilson gets it after like 60 ballots or something like that. And then on top of which, he's advantaged by um, a split within the Republican coalition. Now, what makes Wilson interesting is that if you look at his political coalition in 1912, he wins basically everywhere, but he wins in a three, he wins in a three-way race. He wins in a three-way race. He gets 42% of the vote. TR gets 27%. Taft gets 23%. Now, what makes this interesting is that his 42% of the vote is actually less, a smaller share of the vote than what Bryan had in 1908. So Wilson is president effectively because of a split within the Republican coalition. And it stands to reason that if the Republicans can mend their fences, then Wilson is going to be swept right out um, just as he came in so that he would be an accidental president. So this sets the political context, I think, for the real important and most durable aspect of Wilson's presidency, which is the idea, and to get back to go all the way back to Hamilton, the idea of energy in the executive is that now we're getting to a point now where once again, the president is not a creature of, or sort of like this mere uh, Richard Neustadt called him a clerk, right? I think that's a little unfair to the presidents of the 19th century, but Wilson is going to take the reins of domestic political leadership in a way that TR had tried to do, but now Wilson does not have a large pro-business faction within his party. So we see in the 63rd and the 64th Congress, an absolute flurry of lawmaking as Wilson is trying to stitch together a durable political coalition. And, what, and, and he succeeds. And the coalition is effectively built on the backs of the South and the West. Wilson is reelected in 1916, but he only wins 49% of the vote. His, his margin of victory in the popular vote is only um, something like three points. On top of that, his victory in the Electoral College is only 22. Wilson gets 277 electoral votes to 254 for um, Charles Evans Hughes. And what's interesting is, is that the, the difference between the two sides really comes down to something like 3,000 votes in California, which Hughes lost in many respects because of internal divisions within the Republican Party in California. So the extent to which Wilson is a durable model of democratic governance is, is really doubtful 
in the sense that, you know, if you look in 1916, all of New England, all of the mid-Atlantic, except for New Hampshire, falls back in line. Even New Jersey, his home state, votes for Hughes. New Hampshire, which had always been of the New England states, the most Democratic inclined votes. And then in the Great Lakes region, the only state that votes for Hughes is Ohio. Um, So Wilson really, or excuse me, um, it votes for Wilson is Ohio. So Wilson's coalition is, it's pointing towards the New Deal in the sense that it's a, it's a coalition that's anchored on an alliance between the South and the West. And it's a coalition that's looking to regulate capital in ways that the Republicans are not prepared to do so. But we're not, capital has not yet hit the crisis point that the Great Depression has. And most important of all is that Wilson, unlike FDR, does not make a major play to create and expand the base of industrial labor unions. You don't really see anything like that. Labor unions are still seen as radical, communist, suspect. You have the American Federation of Labor at this also, point. Also foreign and, and yeah, Catholic foreign, too. Right. Like. You have the American Federation of Labor at this point, but that's going to be skilled labor. It's FDR and really Robert Wagner, the senator from New York, who create a political opportunity for guys like Sidney Hillman to organize industrial labor, like the, like the auto industry and the rubber industry. That ends up eviscerating the working class base of the Republican Party in the North. Wilson doesn't do that, right? So Wilson is a herald in a limited sense for FDR in that he he points towards this Southern Western coalition, but FDR smartly adds to it by, you know, turning New York into a 50-50 state, you know, basically puts Philadelphia or Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Illinois, labor unions are hugely influential there. What makes Wilson particularly important and durable is well, one, he gives you know the progressive ideas that FDR is drawing upon. Roosevelt's drawing upon a body of work that was created in part by the Bull Moosers, his you know cousin Teddy's political party, but also his time in the in the Wilson administration. But this idea that Wilson has of getting involved in Congress, so like for instance, one of the, the first things that Wilson does is he calls a special session of Congress and basically demands that Congress enact a a new tariff, right? Um, And that's the Underwood tariff is enacted in 1913 because Wilson calls the special session, like we have to get on this. And Wilson, and there's little things that he does where he begins the practice again of delivering his State of the Union directly uh, to Congress rather than a written State of the Union, which had been the the tradition since Jefferson in 1801. The idea behind this is that the president is going to be a more intimate player in legislative politics, not simply through the use of the veto pen, but also through the so-called bully pulpit, which is you know what we see with the fight over the League of Nations. Like Wilson takes to barnstorming the country. He doesn't, you know, rather than try and work the backroom deals and work the patronage angles to get 
the League of Nations ratified, the Treaty of Versailles ratified. Instead, what he does is he takes to barnstorming the country. This idea Wait, of the he, president- he barnstones internationally too, right? I mean, he it, he doesn't even just restrict it to, to the US. He's, I mean, he's showing up to these giant adoring rallies in Western Europe as well. Yeah. yeah. And so this idea of the American president being the world's biggest celebrity, in many respects, I, I you have to look at TR as the innovator of that, but that really was in many respects just TR being TR. Wilson sees this as, uh, as the role of the president to give coherence to, if the Madisonian system, if the constitutional system as designed and as explicated by Madison in Federalist 10 and Federalist 51, if that is a centrifugal system of splitting power up so that it cannot be uh, abused. Wilson sees the president operating as a contrary or centripetal force by being able to speak to the American people himself, being able to speak to Congress, dictating the range of options that the plurality of the diversity of people in Congress may take. And so we really begin to see under Wilson this kind of era of presidential governance where the president sets the agenda in a way that Grover Cleveland never really set the agenda. So that's sort of one factor. And, you know, again, sort of looking forward to FDR. The other thing that's really important here is the Democrats, after, after the revolt against Speaker Cannon and the rise of the distribution of power to the committee system and the the reliance on seniority within the committee system is something that the Democrats under Wilson retain, and it's retained also in the 1920s. This ends up being a hugely important development for it's, it's, it's actually retained the in the deal. Democratic Party to this day. So yes. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the Republican Party has a much more Darwinian um, and also term limited system of assigning leadership positions in Congress. The Democratic Party retains the central role of seniority even into 2021. They do, but there are exceptions. So like the, the speaker can yank somebody if she wants to. She needs sure. to caucus. So like, for instance, um, oh, who was a congressman from Dearborn? He did, Dingle. That mm-hmm. in, in 2009, they yanked Dingle as chair of energy and commerce and, and plugged in Henry Waxman because they were planning to do um, – a cap and trade bill. Right. And Dingle as being representative of the United Auto Workers was seen as less or more hostile to that. But you're generally speaking, that is like the Republicans are very Darwinian and also lots of term limits on Republican chairs. So it's one reason why you see like senior Republicans tend to retire more than senior Democrats and the Republican conferences a lot younger than the Democratic caucus because the Republicans, you know, you get you get so many terms as chair and then you're out. So those guys just just call it quits. Anyway, what happens is is that because the revolt against Cannon is durable, we move ahead. And this is where and this is gonna be a really interesting story for the New Deal. I don't want to spoil it. I'll just sort of point to this and then we'll call it a day. You move ahead to the great you move ahead to the New Deal. Roosevelt is Franklin bestriding the nation like a behemoth, absolutely like a behemoth. And the Republican Party looks like it is almost dead, okay? And you have this, all of these formerly Republican districts in the North elect Democrats in, I don't remember, 
I get, lose my Congresses. I want to say the 73rd Congress, whatever the New Deal Congresses are. 73rd, I think. Anyway, all of these formerly Republican districts elect Congress, uh, elect Democrats. They come into Congress, political power in the House of Representatives is held on a committee level. And who is in charge of the committees? Well, who would be the most senior Democrats on these committees in 1933? They would be the Southern Democrats because the Southern Democrats are going to be the ones who survived the shellacking the Democrats suffered in 1918 and also 1920 and 1924 because the North basically votes all outside of the Irish areas of the big cities. By like 1926, the entire North is once again back in the fold of the Republican Party. By 1932, they're electing a boatload of Democrats. But these Democrats, these Northern liberal Democrats are going to go into Congress where power is going to be wielded by the Southern Democrats. And that is going to have huge impact. What you're actually going to see is this kind of like weird relationship that Franklin Roosevelt has where he is simultaneously you know, bigger, larger than life and is able to push the, the Congress in toward the New Deal and get Congress to work its will. But at the same time, he's bargaining with the Southern Democrats because he knows, number one, he can't, you know, they have the power. Number two, he can't dislodge them because Southerners, white Southerners are not voting any, for anybody else. So that, that, that makes the relationship between the president and Congress during the New Deal is very, very interesting. I think you'll really, I think our listeners will really enjoy the next, um, the next episode in our little series here. All right. Well, with that, thanks everyone for listening. And when we get to uh, our next episode, we'll cover uh, the New Deal through hopefully up to the Great Society and the emergence of the historical Congress under uh, under what was quaintly called the Imperial Presidency.